And welcome to the Prologue on America's Web Radio. This is a weekly program bringing you introductions to writers and books you may not be familiar with. My name is Doug Dahlgren, and I'll be your host for this hour. I'm an author myself, and I have eight fiction novels that are out there and available. They're action thrillers you might just enjoy. Now, they're available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and on all the online sites. You can also visit my personal website, which is www.dougdahlgren.com. Now, we call this show the prologue because that's what it is. It's an introduction. And while those introductions are mainly for writers, we also love to bring you interesting people with just a good story to tell. They can be from other fields or other endeavors, whatever they do. Now, if you don't have a pen and a paper handy, I'd like you to go get them because you're going to need them. We're going to be giving you information throughout this show that you just might want to make note of. For instance, like right now. If you or someone you know has that book or maybe that interesting story that they need to get out, please reach out to me through email. And there's two ways to do that. There's Doug at DougDahlgren.com. There's also Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com. So please get on the horn, email me, tell me about yourself or your friends, and we'll get in touch with them, see about getting them scheduled for a show. Now, our guest today left the safety and security of college life in New York State to travel to Israel and become a member of the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF. Her memoir is a riveting tale of finding oneself and learning about courage. Now, before we bring her on, I don't want to forget a couple of very important groups of listeners that we're very proud to have here on America's Web Radio and particularly on the prologue. First, our folks serving in the armed forces of this nation all around the world, working hard to keep us safe back home so we can live our lives as we so often take for granted. Freedom isn't free. It's bought and paid for daily by men and women in uniform, and we thank each of them for what they do. The other group I talked about is our first responders who are here in your local community, those police, fire, and EMT personnel who rush to our aid when we need their help. I want to thank them for where they are and for what they do for us also. Now, our guest today is an author who found freedom while working in an apple orchard in Israel. Now, that might sound odd, but that apple orchard was part of an agricultural commune where a young girl broke away from fears of becoming just like her mother. That transition, the maturity that allowed her to face authority and the unknown, was but a small step toward what would become a big leap a little later, joining the Israeli Defense Forces. Now, her book is a memoir of those events, both leading up to and her experiences beyond. Your prologue today is best served by bringing her on to tell about her book. Now, that title of the book is Accidental Soldier, a memoir of service and sacrifice in the Israeli Defense Forces. The author, Dorette Sassen, is with us this morning. Dorette, welcome to the prologue. Thanks for having me, Doug. Glad to be here. Absolutely our pleasure. Listen, Accidental Soldier is your first book, though you're not at all a newcomer to publishing and writing. You've written for the Huffington Post and for The Writer, among other online publications, and you also speak at conferences, libraries, and community centers. 
What what topics do you frequently write and speak on? That's a great question because I'm right now in the process of really building my platform from the book that you just mentioned, Accidental Soldier. So I really try to make it very relevant and current to what is happening in the world today. And, and of course, if I just spoke about what I wrote about regarding teachers, which was where I first started my, my publishing career, I don't know if I would get very far because that would limit me in terms of my audience. Where I am right now and where I'm living my talk is really about the themes of courage and faith and transformation. And that's pretty much self-evident in the memoir, at least from a story point of view. However, I, I feel like when people meet with me, they also want to talk about how to write a book, how to get their name out in the publishing world, which is a whole feat in itself. So I think that it's multifaceted, but it does start with courage. And the people who come and want to pu publish a book also have courage barriers to work through. Very good. Yes, everybody has their own little thing that they need to get over, that hurdle in life. And uh, I, I hear that what you're trying to do is just help them to discover it, find out what it is, and then right. get past it. Right. All right. Now, you're also a fellow talker. You have your own interview program on another network. Uh, tell us real quick what that is and what you do there. Yeah, it's really pretty much self-evident in the title. It's called Giving Voice to Your Courage. started out with Giving Voice to Your Story, where I would start interviewing people about how to use story and how to write a story and became more of a platform building, again, with the topic of courage, which is really so relevant and, and, and multifaceted. I interview authors. I interview entrepreneurs. Those have been the two main audiences that I bring on board. I also interview anybody really with a courage story who has something to say about it and doesn't have to have a celebrity-type story. It doesn't have to be one of these charged, you know, high-power corporate-type stories where you're rags-to-riches-type stories. If courage can be found in so many different ways, and it can be in a small little action step or it can be mind-blowing big. It doesn't have to be mind-blowing big. And frankly, the people that come talk on the show are not are just you, your average person just doing maybe extraordinary things, but regular people just like you and me trying to figure out how to walk this path of courage, how to be more courageous, how to take more courageous leaps, how to live more courageously. Okay. Now, your book is a memoir of events that happened in many cases uh, over 25 years ago. Was it difficult? I know you made notes, but was it difficult to get organized and to get those thoughts in order when you were ready to write them down? You know, the, the, the hardest part, I think, because I'm, I'm a wife and a mother and I'm a writer, and the story starts really back in New York City, Persian Gulf War time, time mapping it, is come, I come to a 1989, 1990, 1991 time frame, I kind of lost track of who that person was in my body and in my mind. And it was a very fearful sort of experience because I had to deal with so many hurdles as a teenager, you know, teenager-type issues. But then I had real different things that teenagers my age wouldn't consider, like leaving the country and joining a military. And going and getting in touch with that 18-year-old was a little scary because I wasn't prepared for the kind of outcome that I would get. And it was a little scary to feel like I 
still want to visit her. I still want to get in touch with her. And there was a part of me that held myself back because I, I knew that I was going to go into stormy waters. I left teenagehood with a sense of relief, like, ah, oh, thank God it's over. Thank God I can move on. Kind of scary chapter. Hello, good chapter. And I didn't quite know how to walk this path. So that was a little scary going in and giving voice to the, to the memoir from a writer's point of view. Understood. What other types of research did you do? I know this is a memoir, but still there are things, details that you want to be sure are accurate. What types of research did you do for this memoir? A lot of it was memories. So that was the research from ahead. A lot of it was opening up a photo album and just looking at pictures and writing stuff that came up. A lot of it was also listening to music of the time period and in another language, in Hebrew. And to connect to half of the book, more than half of the book takes place in Israel, about three quarters of the book takes place in Israel. So I would actually listen to music that we would listen to at the time. I would feel a, a supercharge of energy that just ran through my body like an, a, a surge of adrenaline. And boom, I was there in a second. That was actually the most immediate way to get impact. And I was just right there in a minute. And the other stuff was reading journals. That helped because it really gave me insight into how my mind was processing. 18 is, is different than 45. So it was a real kind of insight opener into the thoughts that I was experiencing. But to get right into a scene, I would often listen to music. That's an interesting comment, because I think yeah. everybody out there can relate to that. Music yeah. is that automatic transportation device that carries you back to high school or wherever it was that you first heard that song. Exactly. And and that's, that's a very interesting comment. Well, listen, the book title is Accidental Soldier, a, memory, a Memoir of Service and Sacrifice in the Israeli Defense Forces. Tell our listeners where they can find this book and find out more about you and it. Great. Because it's, a it's not a traditionally published book, but it's traditionally distributed, it can be found wherever books are sold. That is to say, first stop Amazon. If you are an online book reader and you love to look at stuff on Barnes & Nobles, it's also available there. It's basically sold anywhere books are sold, Books A Million, Barnes & Nobles, all of the indie outlets online. There are a number of places in Pittsburgh where they're sold, but I don't know if there are any Pittsburgh listeners listening right now. And it's also available on my website, www.dorit, Fasten, S as in Sam, A-S-S-O-N as in Nancy, dot com. And you also, on that website, you've got information about uh, your other ventures as well, your, your talk radio show and uh, the speaking engagements and things of that nature. Is that correct? correct. All it's right. a one-stop shop. One-stop shop. Very good. Well, folks, the book is, is an excellent read, and uh, we want you to make sure that you've made note of where to find it and uh, get out there and get busy looking for it. Now, Dorit, your publisher is listed as She Writes Press. Correct. Tell us a little bit real quick about that. We're up against a break, but tell us about that. Right. She Writes Press is a hybrid-type press. That means that authors pay up front for the publishing costs but they get a higher royalty for the actual selling of the book. It's a hybrid-type publisher, which also means that it has traditional distribution, which is 
a very, very important thing in the publishing world, and authors who are self-published often don't get this or have to work hard to figure out how to get their books traditionally published. So that was a big, important uh, consideration going in when I knew I wanted to get this book published, whether or not I wanted to be traditionally published, self-published, or hybrid published, which is a middle ground between traditional and self-publishing. So She Writes Press is a platform for women writers only, sorry men, Women writers, we're kind of getting a lot of attention right now, so we're like the female elite type club. Everybody seems to want to know why we're getting all these awards and what we're doing so well in the publishing world. It's basically a community platform for women writers only, and it consists of all different kinds of genres, ranging from poetry to fiction, nonfiction. Outstanding. Folks, we're listening this morning. We've got our guest, Dorit Sasson. Her book is Accidental Soldier, a Memoir of Service and Sacrifice in the Israeli Defense Forces. I'm Doug Dahlgren. This is the prologue. We're going to be back after these messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back. We're listening this morning to Dorette Sasson. We are here on the prologue on America's Web Radio. We've been talking about her book, Accidental Soldier. It's a memoir of service and sacrifice in the Israeli Defense Forces. Now, Dorette, you're an American girl. You were born in New York City and raised for the most part in this country. Is that correct? That's right. So what drew you over to Israel. I know you were born in a Jewish family. Was that the link, or what actually is it that drew you there? Yes. My background is multifaceted, multicultural. I grew up in Greenwich Village, New York City, which is kind of like that larger-than-life type city, to an Israeli father who also left the country, not also, but left the country at a very young age. So most of his young adult life was in America. So he was very, we spoke English at home. We didn't speak Hebrew a lot. 
my experiences going to Israel was very limited, very much centered around short family trips every five or so years. The actual leaving of going to Israel was just prompted, not because of a Jewish connection, but because one summer during the, the summer between freshman and sophomore years, I was really unhappy, very aimless with my major, not quite sure what I wanted to study. I took a summer off to volunteer on my aunt's kibbutz. A kibbutz is a communal agrarian type place, which pretty much no longer exists in its classical ideal form. I went and took the summer off and worked, as you mentioned before, in the apple orchards and doing all sorts of really out of the comfort zone type experiences, working in the apple orchards, which I didn't really do, doing uh, all sorts of communal type work, whether it was working in the dining room and doing maybe working with the children or folding laundry for a thousand people. And it was a really, it brought me in touch with my emotional freedom. I came back to the States feeling really like, I don't need to be in a classroom. This is not where I need to be right now, and I don't know what's right for now, but I do know what I'm feeling. And what I'm feeling is that this, this situation of following the path of what is, what is right and what everybody is doing and what my peers are doing doesn't sit well with me. So that was one part of it. But the other part is really the mother-daughter type relationship that I had with my mother. She was a very under-nurturing, over-protective type of soul. But she was also very, very scared of Israel. And having just returned from Israel, I felt really charged because I felt, hey, I can prove her wrong and tell her, like, there's nothing wrong with being in Israel. Israel is not the scary place that people here, especially in America, make it to be because there's lack of media attention generally. And people just see very much scary pictures. And that's what they know. And I wanted to prove her wrong. I wanted her to know that what I'm feeling is definitely not what she's thinking. So do you, do you mind? Can we back up a little bit? Please do. Uh, let's let's back up to your parents. You mentioned them. Now, both of them were very high achievers. Tell, right. tell us a little bit about those two individuals, would you? Yeah, they're very high achievers, very much the immigrant-type prototype of coming from another country, fueled with ambition and desire, hopes and dreams, and making it making their American dream here work. For my father, that meant leaving Israel after the IDF, studying at one of the prestigious academies of art in Israel, and then taking his knowledge to Rome, Italy, and then coming to the States. For my mother, she was a Fulbright scholar. She came with hopes and dreams, too. She was a graduate of Juilliard Music Academy in New York City. She left that for Rome after her studying. She got a Fulbright. She studied in Rome. They met and married there. And then both of them came on their own paths and their own journeys, and they met and married in New York City in the 50s and 60s. And at the time, it was a very, you know, uh, a very interesting period for both of them. They were high achievers in the sense that they really were very much into their art, both of them in their respective genres. They had a very high passion for it. My mother would do anything to travel the world, spreading the love of classical music. My father was a high achiever in his genre, uh, many shows around the world, beginning with New York City. So they both had a very high love and regard for their art, and they pursued it incessantly. 
Now, were you an only child? I, had a, I have a brother. You have a brother. Okay, yeah. is he older or younger than you? Uh, he's five years younger. Okay, all right. Uh, did he have the same feelings or did he have the same effects from your parents that you did? I don't believe so. I okay. think we both had different emotions towards it, and we both experienced it very differently. Okay. Now, your mother harbored her insecurities uh, and the fears that you've mentioned, and she she really, do you think it was intentional that she was casting these fears onto you, or was it just the proximity that you were in and, and the relationship with her? Uh, intentional in the sense that she wanted to get me to listen to her. She was very scared of Israel. I mean, really, really, really scared, and sometimes even blown up. Like, when we're scared about something, the the script that we're imagining in our heads is not the script that is actually there in reality. And yes, Israel is a, it can be a scary place, but there, 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 there are warriors over there. You have to understand that this country has the best army in the world, and I, I don't know if uh, it's the right place to say it here, but it's probably a little bit up on par with American army and maybe even more. And so she, she didn't quite get how safe I was over there. And so her intention was for me to really understand that I was getting into super danger and I was probably going to blow myself up by going there. Was and there, that really was not happening. Was there a particular personal incident that she uh, referred to to have these fears or was it just the general concept of what was going on? I think when she visited Israel with my father when they were married that there were there were issues on the places that we were staying, which were close to the Israel-Lebanese border, where there was a heightened sense of security because it was the border. And so there was a time in the memoir where I was five, and then she was getting very wound up because of something that was happening at the time politically, and there was some need to retreat to a shelter. But that was on that area particularly. That was, that was the sense in that area. But it's not the whole country wired up like that. So she didn't have the ability to put things into perspective and to translate that into words from her emotions. So okay. she was really working from an emotional place, not from a logical place. And this is what you were wanting to distance yourself from. Right. Gotcha. Now, the story, your book begins as a young adult. In fact, you're already on your visit to the kibitz. But what was life like for you early in New York? What was life for Dorette as a child growing up in that area? Great question. Yeah, the first few chapters of the memoir explore this kind of psychological profile of who I am. And because I didn't have much experience in Israel, I just kind of was your regular average American teenager, child. But the real problem that I had was I was struggling with this need to feel a sense of security with my mother. That is a prevailing theme all throughout the book, trying to distance myself, but yet trying to get nurtured by her and comforted from her. And when I saw that she couldn't give me what I wanted, I would do things that were not typical of your average American child. For example, there were scenes in the book where I would wait for her to come back from playing at a very uh, important master class with a very important musician at the time who was an Argentinian tango uh, expert. And she wouldn't come home at the time, and this is before cell phones. We're talking in the 70s and 80s. And there was really no way of knowing what was going on. So my mother kind of inherited, I inherited from my mother uh, the 
sense of catastrophizing. And I, and I discussed it in the sense that I would wander the, the halls of our building. And our building is not your typical apartment building in any American U.S. city. It's a very unique building in the sense that it is a artist residence subsidized by the housing development in New York City uh, that is really for low-income housing, uh, uh, low-income artists and families. And the, the whole the building is, is a landmark right now, but at the time it was a, 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 almost a, a, a phantomagoric sort of place, almost like haunted in a way because it was so creepy. So I would, I would take to the hallways, I would wander, I would wait for her to come home. New York City at the time was not safe, it was not the place that it was today. It was creepy, there were lots of drug users, it was on a very dangerous area in the neighborhood. And, and so I, I, would, I would take my worries outside of myself, hoping that I would find solace by doing things like wandering the hallways and wait for my mother to come home. And when she didn't come home, I would start getting really nervous because she told me that, you know, I shouldn't leave the house. But then in the end, I ended up doing that because that was my way of coping with her absence. She would be absent for a many a long time, and she wouldn't come home when she said she would come home. And it, it created a lot of nervousness. To write about it really required a lot of a lot of emotional security, and it wasn't a secure period in time. So everybody who thinks of New York City as this great place, it was. And for for what I did, it was fun. But there were things behind the scenes that were happening that were all, all really hard to understand as a kid. So that's my long answer to the question. Very good. Now, as you neared college age, your father actually wanted you to travel the world. Right. That's that's a little different than the, the normal clingy nature that many fathers have towards their teenage daughters. <laughs> what prompted him to push you in that direction? Was he picking up on the uh, the tension between you and your mom? Yeah, I call him my hero, and uh, there are heroes and there are zeros. And he was a hero in the sense that he saw the problems and he wanted to minimize or or help me understand that. Uh, that I, sh- I should find a more independent way to do things. And the answers don't always have to be in a classroom, and the answers don't always have to be doing the right thing. That his, his idea was, yes, it's drastic, but yes, you're, you, you can do this if there is an alternative to your, to your unhappiness. There is a way to find your, yourself outside of the classroom. And he, he sent how, how college was creating so much anxiety and I was looking at everybody declaring their majors and becoming pre-law majors and pre-med and I'm like, I don't, I don't fit in with any of those things. And it was very difficult and as a teenager, it created a lot of tension, as you can imagine. So his idea was, I guess it was coming from a place of intention where there, you don't have to be limited by this and whether or not I took up on his offer and I saw that something important was another, you know, part of the book. But but his his intention was you don't have to be limited by your choices. All right. Folks, we're here this morning with Dorit Sasson. We're hearing about her book, Accidental Soldier, a memoir of service and sacrifice in the Israeli Defense Forces. You're listening to the prologue. We'll be back after these messages. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, 
taking the appropriate action, from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz. Join me each week, Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, as we talk drones, Internet of Things, and technology. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back. You're listening to the prologue on America's Web Radio. Our guest today is Dorit Sasson. Her book, Accidental Soldier, a memoir of service and sacrifice in the Israeli Defense Forces. Audience, pick that pen and pencil up again. Dorit, tell the folks one more time where they can find out more about you and this new book. My website is Dorit Sasson, www.dorit, like Doritos, but you don't use the OS, D-O-R-I-T-S as in Sam, A-S-S-O-N, as in Nancy.com the name of my memoir, which is going to be released on June 14th, which is five days from now, is Accidental Soldier, like an accident, a memoir of service and sacrifice in the Israel Defense Forces. All right, very good. Now, we were in the midst of the story about how your father was helping you, pushing you really to go on a a world round trip, but you ended up just traveling to Israel to visit with an aunt at a kibitz. What, you mentioned what it was earlier, but explain to our listening audience again exactly what a kibitz is. Right. A kibitz is a communal agrarian framework where everybody is working for the common good of everybody else. That means nobody has more than the other person. The kibitz members are given a budget and they are allotted a certain amount of money to buy something that they need, food and stuff. But basically, all their meals are taken care of, their housing is taken care of by the kibbutz, which oversees every single kibbutz member. Their education is paid for, so they don't have more, they don't need to build another floor to their house, they don't need to worry about transportation because they have car access, and everything is pretty much taken care of because they're working together for the common good of each other. That model has pretty much been eradicated when the kibbutzim movement decided to become privatized, meaning every kibbutz started to decided to disintegrate the previous model that was established pretty much before Israel became a state. Many kibbutzim were established way before 1948, and they continued to prosper. However, people decided that they had enough of it, and that's when the kibbutzim started to change. How long did you stay there on that first trip? On that first trip, I was there for about seven weeks. Seven weeks, okay. And this was a good 
a good year before you decided to go back. You came home and you actually went back to college and, and uh, committed yourself to another year, uh, but you had trouble coming up with what you wanted to major in. Tell us about that. Yeah, while everybody was declaring pre-med and law, I was studying mummy feed as part of an Egyptian archaeology course or anthropology through film, which is great with Margaret Mead, but when you don't know what you want to study, it becomes almost a hassle. And I was like, ah, I, I, I was looking for structure, but I didn't want it to be spoon-fed to me. I wanted to find, find out for myself whether or not I really wanted to be an English major. And it was, it was a, a trial-and-error type experience. After two years, I really feel, felt that the, I was also studying at a place where it wasn't your typical New York City type environment. There were a lot of people from Long Island, which is a different kind of vibe, different kind of attitude, different mentality. And I didn't find my New York City soul in that environment. So that was a little bit of a letdown, going in and seeing that everybody was not really from my place in the earth, of earth, I was a little disconnected. When you left after those seven weeks, was there something in the back of your mind that told you, I, I want to come back here, or did that thought just really develop after you got home and experienced what you just described? It was pretty much pretty immediate. I was ready for the experience when I came with my family. When, when I came, it was like when I was really young. But when I was 18, I was really ready for that emotional experience. It was pretty impactful and pretty immediate. It, it didn't happen the first day, but it happened within a few weeks where I felt supercharged. I felt like I can do this. This is free. I feel emotionally free here. And when I came back to the States, I knew that something had changed within me, and I just needed time to figure out my next steps. Now, we mentioned the apple orchard. Tell us what happened there. What was it that uh, spurred you or, or the, the real emotional change that you experienced in the apple orchard? Yeah. The apple orchard is a funny scene because it was like the place where I was working at was surrounded by nature, and I never really got a chance to work in the nature. I was always stuck in working in the kitchen because then the, you have to understand that they put you where they need you. And where they needed me was not in the apple orchard. So, of course, you feel free when you're there, but to get there, I had to go through some hoops and hurdles. I had to deal with a, a really bossy Australian girl who turned me over and didn't like me from day one. And I had to deal with a lot of different kind of characters, working with domestic-type labor, not with, you know, fruits and vegetables. So it was at that point where I said, hey, I want to be away from this Australian. I want to do something that's a little bit more meaningful, maybe even more physical than what I'm doing now. So I approached the person in charge of assigning all the jobs, and I said, you know, put me in the apple orchard because I'm really, I've had enough of being in the kitchen. And and that's when the magic happened. I was, I didn't realize I could actually enjoy this kind of manual type labor. You're picking apples and you're putting it in your in your canvas bag that opens up from the bottom. I thought it was all really quite planned very well, like, oh, wow, you can actually have fun doing this. But at the end of it all, I felt the sense of a freedom that, that there's, there's more than just picking apples. There's more than just eating them, sitting on, on a wet piece of land. There's actually a lot more going on because there's the military in the background. I got to see the whole country that way from that area of the world, and I got to experience freedom at the same time.
while you're back home, the emotional distance between you and your mother actually got worse once once you had returned. Uh, she spent most of her time either practicing or performing. Uh, that wasn't a very good time for you, was it? No, it was not. She really didn't. I think she didn't. I think she sensed that I had changed, and she knew that this would be her last attempt to bar me from going back to Israel. And so she and I had a spitting match. It was really quite gory. It, one person might interpret this as physical abuse, but it was her physical aggression, really, lashing out at me because I told her, like, within a year or maybe even nine months, I told her I'm not coming back. I'm not going to study at New York at college. And for her, that really, that really hurt her. I think in retrospect, what was painful was that she had high hopes for me. She was an immigrant herself who came from a daughter of a Holocaust survivor where college meant everything for her. It was like fulfilling, becoming a person, becoming a somebody. And to see her daughter kind of throw it down the toilet really made her feel like she had failed as a parent, that she didn't do well for me. And for her to, to have me leave her and go to Israel was even like an insult and, and really hard for her to understand. So we, we had this really intense spitting match. It was kind of like a nonverbal way of communication where she said, you know, I'm not letting you go there. And I'm like, well, I don't care. I'm doing what I need to do right now. This is where I need to be. And, and she realized at that point that she had no, she had given up the fight. It was just, and, and that was it. She couldn't do it anymore. Well, not only did you decide to drop out of college and return to Israel, you had decided to join the Israeli Defense Forces. Now, talk right. about courage. Right. Uh, did your father sign off on that, or how did he take that decision? Well, it started first when I was volunteering on the kibbutz. I had noticed, and that's how the book opens, when I am volunteering and I notice these IDF soldiers, and I'm really attracted to them. And the more I talk about it now, the more I realize how much of an attraction it was. It was just a simple closer to soldiers. Like here in America, the chances of seeing a soldier is pretty none. And there everybody is in uniform all the time. You constantly feel like you're protected. It's a really um, secure feeling. And I, I liked how it, it just played out in my mind. When I came back and, and we discussed me going in or leaving and dropping out of college, we had a bigger plan set. It was me leaving my mother to immigrate to Israel to serve in the IDF with the intention that my parents, meaning my father and my stepmother, his second wife, would join us a year later, I would establish residency and he would start again as a returning Israeli going back to his homeland because he also had enough of my mother, but on his own way. So it was really a back-to-roots type thing, and it was kind of planned but I knew I had to establish residency first and do my own thing before he would join me. Now, you mentioned the soldiers, and I want to make sure everybody understands. This wasn't just infatuation with the uniform type thing like right. people right. can experience here. Uh, they they really meant something more in right. Israel. Uh, right. Go a little bit more into detail about that, because I don't think folks understand what it's right. like to live in that situation. No, it's... And, and I didn't either, as I was experiencing it as a tourist working on a as a volunteer. The, the whole concept of service in America is that mm, people who go into the armed forces maybe start with 
a, um, a Marine Corps or, uh, or a volunteer, or maybe they do a few years, and it's, sometimes it's by choice, and sometimes it's not. Maybe it's not. In Israel, you are mandated to do the service. Every Israeli does service, whether you're male or female. Males do typically three years, women do two years, and if you sign on for more time and you have a special job and a special unit, then that's different. The whole concept of service was foreign to me growing up in New York City. My mother did not like any idea of volunteering. Her idea of service was just playing the piano and doing her thing, and nothing wrong with that. It was just she didn't like doing any of that stuff. It was too scary for her. It was out of her comfort zone. The other thing that really spoke to me very deeply beyond just national service, like you're serving something and you're part of it and it's a social thing and everybody's doing it together. And also you don't have people commanding you and putting you down. It's almost like a big brother, big sister type setup. And it's almost communal, like it's your extended family because everybody does it. So I felt uplifted, like the country has my back. That is a very different feeling in America where everybody's kind of on their own and everybody's doing their own thing. And people in Israel are socially wired with each other. And coming from a very isolated, emotionally isolated, under-nurtured, kind of remote feeling in my heart, I felt like I needed to be part of something. And the military was that ticket in to that society and that mentality. And also, you have to understand that if you do not do the army in Israel because it's mandated to you and you skip it and you declare a very low profile because of psychological reasons, you're actually shunned. You don't get good jobs. Your entry to the job world is limited because the first thing they ask you is, what did you do in the army? And that is a big thing if you do not do the army. So here in America, there's nothing like that. You don't. Nobody looks at your resume and say, well, why didn't you do the army? You know? So that's the difference. That's a cultural difference that spoke to me very deeply. I think those that were old enough to, to live through it and understand, a uh, couple, three weeks, maybe a little longer than that, but it wasn't long enough. After we were hit on 9-11, the country came together in that type of a psychological mold, what you just described. But the thing about us over here is that we quickly forget that. We get back into our own individual right. little right little world and and you know hey the, what what's going on for my country was important but really I'm looking out for myself and right. and we drift away from that and and what you said I personally think that that should be on the resume of every politician that we have what did you do in the army right you know but right. you know now we've got so many people that are making decisions for the country particularly military decisions that have no experience in that area folks we are here this morning on the prologue on America's Web Radio, we've got the pleasure of having Dorit Sasson, and she's telling us about Accidental Soldier, and we are going to take our last break, and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. 
So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we are back. This is the prologue on America's Web Radio. We're here this morning talking with Dorit Sasson. Her new book, Accidental Soldier, a a memoir of service and sacrifice in the Israeli Defense Forces. It's going to be available on Amazon and on her personal website, just about everywhere you find books online. So... We want to get back to our discussion with her, make sure we get everything in this morning. The term Zionist is something that we hear thrown around quite a bit. Tell us what Zionist really means. Right. Well, Theodore Herzl, he was the father of modern Zionism. And at the time when Israel was Palestine, that was the term that was used to call Israel before it officially became a state. His idea of Zionism was the the place where all Jews should return to a homeland, whether it's for religious or social ideology. It was really coming from social ideology. Today it has a mixed implication depending on where you're coming from and what your intentions are. It can be religious, because if you're a religious fanatic, you believe that Israel is only the homeland to the Jews, or it can be a social, and meaning that it's all um, it's a Jewish homeland, and that means wherever you come from in the world, that's where you belong. Now, some felt you had to be a strong Zionist to join the Israeli army, didn't they? Right. Did, right. You, run, did you run into any uh, uh, obstacles in coming back over there and wanting to join? I felt like I had to have a qualifying mindset. The first thing that I kept coming up to was, I, ha- I don't have any experience in this country. You know, I have came with very limited knowledge of Hebrew, very limited knowledge of cultural awareness. I used my New York City smarts, but that doesn't go very far in Israel where everything is very much monitored and regulated very differently. So I, I, I kept going back to the Zionist place in my brain because that was the only way I could qualify whether or not I, I had the ability to be there and thrive and survive. So that was the only way I looked at it. Now, you thought you wanted to be a fighter when you first went over there. Uh, did you actually ever see any military action firsthand? I did get into the military action only later in the service. I joined a special unit called Nahal, which is the Pioneer Fighting Unit, where they are based uh, on settlements in Kibbutzim doing agrarian farm work. 
but they also have combined military service, and therefore they do a lot of military stuff. The action that I saw started in basic training, but when we moved into various spaces with the brigade, we were sent to Gaza, Gaza. we were sent to different border areas uh, in the Golan Heights, which is part of the Syrian Israel border and also the Lebanese Israel border. There was action there. It wasn't during a war type action, but there was military action. Now, you mentioned your basic training. There was a delay in that. Do you, do you recall what that delay was caused by? Oh, the famous delay. This was a very unique thing that happened only to us at Piers, but it could have happened, and I don't know. The delay was that they switched our basic training to a different place on the timeline of service. And typically, when you're starting out, you want to be able to fire a gun. You want to be able to use the military tactics so that when you're sent to work on board on borders or on settlements that are on the border you can protect your settlement you can protect the kibbutz you can protect wherever you are and we had a lot of problems with the fact that they switched it to a later place later point in time which created a lot of friction with with us in the group that we were serving with and you were only 19 years old at this point, too. We want to make sure we remind people. Right. Uh, and those first six months that you were in the IDF, those were fairly rough, weren't they? Yes, they were very rough. Now, your experiences there taught you patience. And, and you this is your words, not mine, but you said it taught you how to not be goofy. Tell, tell us what you meant by that. Yeah, well, in Israel, you have bureaucracy, and I had to learn very clearly that bureaucracy meant being able to bypass any kind of issues that may have come up, trying to get my immigrant card. That was one of the first kind of lessons of patience. I didn't get it right away when I got off the plane. But once I was serving with a bunch of uh, immigrants from all over the world, basically the mentality was very different. I wasn't serving with uh, native Israelis. I was serving with IDF foreign recruits, and that meant being able to work with those different mentalities. And I was the only American girl. I were two other Americans, but they didn't like the way I was behaving. And I was trying to figure out what my best way was to manage all these mentalities. And the way I kind of, you know, humor is a great tool. And so I used it and they didn't see it very favorably and they didn't like it. And they actually looked at me like, as you said, goofy. And it created a lot of conflict and a lot of problems between us. You were very serious, though. I know you probably had a background in Hebrew, but you went back to school to increase your knowledge of the language, did you not? I, I had some university Hebrew, but we all went and studied as uh, part of our training at a special uh, language, Hebrew language learning with the, with the Army, and that was where we got very, very... Uh, a lot of training in the in the Hebrew part. Okay. Now, we don't want to give the book away too much, but you were in the IDF for about 29 months. Is that right? Yeah. Absolutely. And you stayed on in Israel for quite some time after your service in the IDF. You used uh, what you had earned when you serviced to go back to school, uh, and then you were a teacher. Is that correct? Right. And you ran into some issues with, uh, with being there and teaching English. Uh, real brief, tell us what happened. Yeah, so I was trying to manage a lot of Israeli school children in a classroom. It was a lot of cultural management, and I used a lot of Hebrew to get my way. It was kind of 
like, okay, you know, if you're going to manage all these kids, you have to be able to speak their language. And it was hard because I was there to teach them English. And at the same time, I had to manage them in terms of their behavior. So there was a lot of linguistic and cultural issues that came up at the beginning. So just mainly cultural things. And yes. Knocking heads with other teachers. Yeah. Knocking heads. That can yes. happen here. Yes. Only not in Hebrew. <laughs> now, <laughs> that had to be interesting. Now, you met somebody while you were there, uh, that young girl who left New York to go to Israel. When you actually came home some years later, you find yourself a wife and a mother. How did you meet your husband? We met at a kibbutz after maybe I, I finished the Army in 1993. We met in 2001. It was the last kibbutz that I had settled on. And I met him on that last kibbutz. Okay. Now, you guys currently live in Pittsburgh, is that correct? Right. And you have two children of your own. Can we ask what ages they are? My son is 11. My daughter is almost three. Oh, my goodness. What do you do in your spare time? Monitor them. <laughs> <laughs> now, do they know about Mommy's exciting time in the military? Yes, they know. My three-year-old, she looks at... My, the cover, and she identifies it as mommy's book. My son, however, knows a little bit more because he also goes to a school where there's a lot of, it's a Hebrew day school, and therefore there's a lot of talk and information about Israel, so it's not like something new for him. When did you actually start writing? Uh, you have a lot going on. Uh, and I'm asking about the articles for the publications, not necessarily the book, but when you actually started writing for publication. When I came to the States in 2007, I knew I wanted to spend more time writing, something I didn't do when I was in Israel because I was teaching all the time. I started writing pretty much once I landed in New York, once I came to Manhattan, which is where I stayed. And then I just wrote different kinds of articles. It was Sometimes it was writing children's stories. Sometimes I was writing articles for teachers. Sometimes I was writing books for teachers because that's what I used my knowledge from when teaching in Israel. And eventually I started writing a memoir. It was only in 2012, however, when I started to write that book. Tell us, if you would, about Pebbles in the Pond, transforming one, or transforming the world one person at a time. Right. That was my first real experience with telling my personal story and first experience talking about it from a returning American and what it felt like. And then the memoir really got more into it behind the scenes. But that one chapter really talked about what it felt like, what the experience was like to come back as a returning American, not knowing what the heck a target is, not knowing what an SUV was, not knowing, uh, you know, coming, leaving as a teenager and coming back as a wife and a mother and then trying to make sense of it all. Now, the word courage comes up a lot in your books and also in your talk show. Uh, courage is very important to you, isn't it? Yeah. Is that something that you, uh, I don't want to use the word push, but is that something that you uh, want to make your children aware of and make sure that they understand what courage is and why it's important to them? Yes. The book is a legacy in courage. It's a lesson in courage. It's also I'm modeling it to them as I do things day in, day out. So if I'm leaving and I'm doing a talk somewhere or I'm going to New York City to pitch the book at the New York Book Conference, that's courage because I'm leaving my comfort zone. I want them to know that I'm sacrificing something for my higher good. That takes courage, too. So there's a lot of lessons that I'm modeling as I'm doing the work that I do. 
Dorrit, would you tell the folks one more time, please, where they can get in touch with you, uh, learn more about your books, yourself, your show, uh, everything about you? Right. So I do a lot of speaking events throughout the year on different area, in different areas uh, in Pittsburgh and beyond. That, all of that can be found about the, the events that I'm doing at DoreetSasson.com. It's a one-stop shop, Dorit, D-O-R-I-T-S-A-S-S-O-N, as in Nancy. I'm always interested in interviewing people about courage, and my mission is really about courage because I believe that that's where my focus is right now. I would love to hear from anybody who would like to be interviewed for the show for the podcast that I do every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern about how you live courage and how do you live courageously. I also help business owners write their books and help brand their business, and that takes courage, too. So that if that's something that may interest anybody listening right now to this, that's something that I would love to help you with. I can be reached through my website. There's a contact button and you can reach me through there. Now, is there anything that we've left out this morning, anything beyond that that you just really need to mention? Yeah, it, it just the whole idea of writing a book is scary and daunting. It's a, I look at it as a marathon and not a sprint, and it takes a long journey of courage to write it, but the key is really to write as much as, and as frequently as possible. A lot of people out there say that they want to write a book, but they don't always do it. So if if there's a there's always a reason why, but there's always a book that needs to be written. So if you need to have help with that, please get in touch with me. There you go. Dorit, your memoir, Accidental Soldier, a, mem- a memoir of service and sacrifice in the Israeli Defense Forces. It's a very terrific read. We thank you so much for coming here and telling us about it, and we hope you've had a good time on the prologue. Thank you, Doug, for having me. It was great having you. All right, very good. Listen, for now, I am Doug Dahlgren, and I want to thank each and every one of you for listening to the prologue. For my guest this hour, Dorit Sasson, and myself, I say have a great rest of your week. Be good to yourselves and each other. Read a book. If it's not Dorit's, maybe it'll be one of mine. And I'll see you all again in just 167 hours. Take care. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.